This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida, on January 7, 2006. The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Chapter 9. Concerning a Civil Principality. But coming to the other point, where a leading citizen becomes the prince of his country, not by wickedness or any intolerable violence, but by the favor of his fellow-citizens, this may be called a civil principality. Nor is genius or fortune altogether necessary to attain to it, but rather a happy shrewdness. I say, then, that such a principality is obtained either by the favor of the people, or by the favor of the nobles. Because in all cities these two distinct parties are found, and from this it arises that the people do not wish to be ruled nor oppressed by the nobles, and the nobles wish to rule and oppress the people. And from these two opposite desires there arises in cities one of three results, either a principality, self-government, or anarchy. A principality is created either by the people or by the nobles, accordingly as one or the other of them has the opportunity. For the nobles, seeing they cannot withstand the people, begin to cry up the reputation of one of themselves, and they make him a prince, so that under his shadow they can give vent to their ambitions. The people, finding they cannot resist the nobles, also cry up the reputation of one of themselves, and make him a prince, so as to be defended by his authority. He who obtains sovereignty by the assistance of the nobles maintains himself with more difficulty than he who comes to it by the aid of the people, because the former finds himself with many around him who consider themselves his equals, and because of this he can neither rule nor manage them to his liking. But he who reaches sovereignty by popular favor finds himself alone, and has none around him, or few, who are not prepared to obey him. Besides this, one cannot by fair dealing and without injury to others satisfy the nobles, but you can satisfy the people, for their object is more righteous than that of the nobles, the latter wishing to oppress, while the former only desire not to be oppressed. It is to be added that a prince can never secure himself against a hostile people because of their being too many, whilst from the nobles he can secure himself, as they are few in number. The worst that a prince may expect from a hostile people is to be abandoned by them, but from hostile nobles he has not only to fear abandonment, but also that they will rise against him, for they, being in these affairs more far-seeing and astute, always come forward in time to save themselves, and to obtain favors from him whom they expect to prevail. Further, the prince is compelled to live always with the same people, but he can do well without the same nobles, being able to make and unmake them daily, and to give or take away authority when it pleases him. Therefore, to make this point clearer, I say that 
the nobles ought to be looked at mainly in two ways. That is to say, they either shape their course in such a way as binds them entirely to your fortune, or they do not. Those who do so bind themselves, and are not rapacious, ought to be honored and loved. Those who do not bind themselves may be dealt with in two ways. They may fail to do this through pusillanimity and the natural want of courage, in which case you ought to make use of them, especially of those who are of good counsel. And thus, while in prosperity you honor them, in adversity you do not have to fear them. But when, for their own ambitious ends, they shun binding themselves, it is a token that they are giving more thought to themselves than to you, and a prince ought to guard against such, and to fear them, as if they were open enemies, because, in adversity, they always help to ruin him. Therefore, one who becomes a prince through the favor of the people ought to keep them friendly. And this he can easily do, seeing they only ask not to be oppressed by him. But one who, in opposition to the people, becomes a prince by the favor of the nobles, ought above everything to seek to win the people over to himself, and this he may easily do if he takes them under his protection because men when they receive good of him of whom they were expecting evil are bound more closely to their benefactor thus the people quickly become more devoted to him than if he had been raised to the principality by their favors and the prince can win their affections in many ways but as these vary according to the circumstances one cannot give fixed rules so i omit them but i repeat it is necessary for a prince to have the people friendly, otherwise he has no security in adversity. Nabus, note, Nabus, tyrant of Sparta, conquered by the Romans under Flaminus in 195 B.C. and killed in 192 B.C., end note. Nabus, prince of the Spartans, sustained the attack of all Greece and of a victorious Roman army, and against them he defended his country and his government. And for the overcoming of this peril, it was not only necessary for him to make himself secure against a few, but this would not have been sufficient had the people been hostile. And do not let any one impugn this statement with trite proverb that he who builds on the people builds on the mud, for this is true when a private citizen makes a foundation there, and persuades himself that the people will free him when he is oppressed by the enemies or by the magistrates, wherein he would find himself very often deceived, as happened to the Gracchi in Rome, and to Messer Giorgio Scali in Florence. Messer Giorgio Scali, this event was to be found in Machiavelli's Florentine History, Book Three. But granted, a prince who has established himself as above, who can command, and is a man of courage, undismayed in adversity, who does not fail in other qualifications, and who, by his resolution and energy, keeps the whole people encouraged, such a one will never find himself deceived in them, and it will be shown that he has laid his foundations well. 
These principalities are liable to danger when they are passing from the civil to the absolute order of government, for such princes either rule personally or through magistrates. In the latter case, their government is weaker and more insecure, because it rests entirely on the good will of those citizens who are raised to the magistracy, and who, especially in troubled times, can destroy the government with great ease, either by intrigue or open defiance, and the prince has not the chance amid tumults to exercise absolute authority, because the citizens and subjects, accustomed to receive orders from magistrates, are not of a mind to obey him amid these confusions, and there will always be in doubtful times a scarcity of men whom he can trust. For such a prince cannot rely upon what he observes in quiet times, when citizens have need of the state, because then every one agrees with him. They all promise, and when death is far distant they all wish to die for him. But in troubled times, when the state has need of its citizens, then he finds but few. And so much the more is this experiment dangerous, inasmuch as it can only be tried once. Therefore a wise prince ought to adopt such a course that his citizens will always, in every sort and kind of circumstance, have need of the state and of him, and then he will always find them faithful. CHAPTER Ten, CONCERNING THE WAY IN WHICH THE STRENGTH OF ALL PRINCIPALITIES OUGHT TO BE MEASURED. IT IS NECESSARY TO CONSIDER ANOTHER POINT IN EXAMINING THE CHARACTER OF THESE PRINCIPALITIES, THAT IS, whether a prince has such power that, in case of need, he can support himself with his own resources, or whether he has always need of the assistance of others. And to make this quite clear, I say that I consider those who are able to support themselves by their own resources, who can either by abundance of men or money raise a sufficient army to join battle against any one who comes to attack him, and I consider those always to have need of others who cannot show themselves against an enemy in the field, but are forced to defend themselves by sheltering behind walls. The first case has been discussed, but we will speak of it again, should it recur. In the second case, one can say nothing, except to encourage such princes to provision and fortify their towns, and not on any account to defend the country. And whoever shall fortify his town well, and shall have managed the other concerns of his subjects in the way stated above, and to be often repeated, will never be attacked without great caution. For men are always adverse to enterprises where difficulties can be seen, and it will be seen not to be an easy thing to attack one who has his own town well fortified, and is not hated by his people. The cities of Germany are absolutely free. They own but little country around them, and they yield obedience to the emperor when it suits them, nor do they fear this or any other power they may have near them, because they are fortified in such a way that everyone thinks the taking of them by assault would be tedious and difficult.' 
seeing that they have proper ditches and walls, they have sufficient artillery, and they always keep in public depots enough for one year's eating, drinking, and firing. And beyond this, to keep the people quiet and without loss to the state, they always have the means of giving work to the community in those labors that are the life and strength of the city, and on the pursuit of which the people are supported. They also hold military exercises in repute, and, moreover, have many ordinances to uphold them. Therefore, a prince who has a strong city, and has not made himself odious, will not be attacked, or, if any one should attack, he will only be driven off with disgrace. Again, because that the affairs of the world are so changeable, it is almost impossible to keep an army a whole year in the field without being interfered with. And whoever should reply, if the people have property outside the city and see it burnt, they will not remain patient, and the long siege and self-interest will make them forget their prince. To this I answer that a powerful and courageous prince will overcome all such difficulties by giving at one time hope to his subjects that the evil will not be for long, and another time fear of the cruelty of the enemy, then preserving himself adroitly from those subjects who seem to him to be too bold. Further, the enemy would naturally, on his arrival, at once burn and ruin the country at the time when the spirits of the people are still hot and ready for the defense, and therefore so much less ought the prince to hesitate, because after a time, when spirits have cooled, the damage is already done, the ills are incurred, and there is no longer any remedy, and therefore they are so much the more ready to unite with their prince, he appearing to be under obligations to them now that their houses have been burnt, and their possessions ruined in his defense. For it is the nature of men to be bound by the benefits they confer, as much as by those they receive. Therefore, if everything is well considered, it will not be difficult for a wise prince to keep the minds of his citizens steadfast from first to last, when he does not fail to support and defend them. CHAPTER Eleven, CONCERNING ECCLESIASTICAL PRINCIPALITIES it only remains now to speak of ecclesiastical principalities, touching which all difficulties are prior to getting possession, because they are acquired either by capacity or good fortune, and they can be held without either, for they are sustained by the ancient ordinances of religion, which are so all-powerful and of such a character that the principalities may be held no matter how their princes behave and live. These princes alone have states, and do not defend them, and they have subjects, and do not rule them, and the states, although unguarded, are not taken from them, and the subjects, although not ruled, do not care, and they have neither the desire nor the ability to alienate themselves. Such principalities only are secure and happy but, being upheld by powers to which the human mind cannot reach, I shall speak no more of them, 
because, being exalted and maintained by God, it would be the act of a presumptuous and rash man to discuss them. Nevertheless, if any one should ask of me how it comes that the Church has attained such greatness in temporal power, seeing that from Alexander backwards the Italian potentates, not only those who have been called potentates, but every baron and lord through the smallest, have valued the temporal power very slightly, yet now a king of France trembles before it, and it has been able to drive him from Italy and to ruin the Venetians, although this may be very manifest, it does not appear to me superfluous to recall it in some measure to memory. Before Charles, King of France, passed into Italy, Charles the Eighth invaded Italy in 1494, this country was under the dominion of the Pope, the Venetians, the King of Naples, the Duke of Milan, and the Florentines. These potentates had two principal anxieties. The one, that no foreigner should enter Italy under arms, the other, that none of themselves should seize more territory. Those about whom there was the most anxiety were the Pope and the Venetians. To restrain the Venetians, the union of all the others was necessary, as it was for the defense of Ferrara, and to keep down the Pope they made use of the barons of Rome, who, being divided into two factions, Orsini and Colonesi, have always a pretext for disorder, and, standing with arms in their hands under the eyes of the pontiff, kept the pontificate weak and powerless. And although there might arise sometimes a courageous pope, such as Sixtus, yet neither fortune nor wisdom could rid him of these annoyances, and the short life of a pope is also a cause for weakness, for in the ten years, which is the average life of a pope, he can with difficulty lower one of the factions, and if, so to speak, one people should almost destroy the Colonesi, another would arise hostile to the Orsini, who would support their opponents, and yet would not have time to ruin the Orsini. This is the reason why the temporal powers of the Pope were little esteemed in Italy. Alexander the Sixth arose afterwards, who of all the pontiffs that have ever been showed how a Pope with both money and arms was able to prevail, and through the instrumentality of the Duke Valentino, and by reason of the entry of the French, he brought about all those things which I have discussed above in the actions of the Duke. And although his intention was not to aggrandize the Church, but the Duke, nevertheless, what he did contributed to the greatness of the Church, which, after his death and the ruin of the Duke, became the heir to all his labors. Pope Julius came afterwards, and found the Church strong, possessing all the Romagna, the barons of Rome reduced to impotence, and, through the chastisements of Alexander, the factions wiped out. He also found the way open to accumulate money in such a manner as had never been practiced before Alexander's time. Such things Julius not only followed, but improved upon,
and he intended to gain Bologna, to ruin the Venetians, and to drive the French out of Italy. All of these enterprises prospered with him, and so much the more to his credit, inasmuch as he did everything to strengthen the church, and not any private person. He kept also the Orsini and the Colonetzi factions within the bounds in which he found them, and although there was among them some mind to make disturbance, nevertheless he held two things firm, the one, the greatness of the church, with which he terrified them, and the other, not allowing them to have their own cardinals, who caused the disorders among them. For whenever these factions have their cardinals, they do not remain quiet for long, because cardinals foster the factions in Rome and out of it, and the barons are compelled to support them, and thus, from the ambitions of prelates, arise disorders and tumults among the barons. For these reasons, his holiness, Pope Leo, Pope Leo X was the Cardinal de' Medici, found the pontificate most powerful, and it is to be hoped for, if others make it great in arms, he will make it still greater, and more venerated by his goodness, and infinite other virtues. End of chapter 11